Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guests are Catherine Powers and Jake Brown, who alongside with the late Freddie Powers are the authors of The Spree of 83, The Life and Times of Freddie Powers, who's widely credited for bringing Dixieland jazz into the Nashville mainstream. And my goodness, there are so many wonderful stories in this book. Catherine and Jake are telling us about a few of them. It's an oral history of Freddie's rock and roll lifestyle, from things like building his own plane to taking people up to his penthouse, getting them drunk, and then bringing them back down to gamble at casinos to multiple festivals and his very fantastic sense of humor. We're covering all different kinds of things in here. And you know what? Catherine and Jake made this very easy for me because they have so many good stories to tell and share that they just got on a roll with them. And when I don't have to ask any questions, that's super easy for me. And so it's very uh, fun back and forth between them as they're recounting all of the very enjoyable moments of Freddie's life and a lot of great quotes in here and even more in the book though there's all sorts of songwriters and stars that they've chatted with including Sonny Throckmorton, Paul Buskirk, Floyd Tillman, Tanya Tucker, Big and Rich, Larry Gatlin, producer Frank Lydell. Freddie was great friends with Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and it's just there's so many terrific stories. It's hard to get into all of them that are in the book, but we're getting into plenty in this podcast, and that is a perfect jumping-off point. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out via joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. And there's a brand new selection in the merch shop, which is actually on Etsy right now. A little combo with my food blog life which is etsy.com slash fatfoodtees, P-H-A-T-P-H-O-O-D-T-E-E-S. And we're also dropping the Spotify link to the soundtrack of The Spree of 83 in the show notes. So once you listen to the episode, head on over to that and listen to all of the great songs as well as some wonderful live performances. And also you get a, you get a sense of the sense of humor I guess a taste of the sense of humor, so we're not saying sense multiple times. Either way, it's wonderful all around. And now let's hop into the conversation with Catherine and Jake. Freddie had his own joke night, and and they held it up at John Rich's house, and we'll tell you more about that. But this guy, you had to have a a thick skin to hang out because Freddie was texted to the phone, man. Uh, there's a funny story in the book where where Willie and Freddie back before cell phones, back when phone companies still charged by the minute for long distance, and Overseas, it was like three or four minutes. You guys remember how crazy it used to be? Um, yeah, both, them, hands, both hands got charged. Yeah, so if you accepted a, if you accepted a call from overseas, you got charged, and and they got charged for calling you from overseas. Yeah, so Willie would be on. Well, Catherine could tell you Willie would basically be on tour if he heard a joke. He'd call Freddie, and then Freddie would call him. Tell her, tell him this story. It's a great story, if you don't mind. Uh, well, I was. It, he would just call him at no time, you know, time didn't matter. And um, there'd be times when the phone would ring at like four o'clock in the morning and or three o'clock in the morning and we'd be Willie to tell Freddie some joke that he had heard. And by the time he got home, though, Freddie had already been out on the golf course and told the joke. So when Willie would get home, they'd look at him like, well, Freddie's already told that one, you know. <laughs> At the end of the month, they would get these three and four hundred dollar overseas phone bills, and Catherine would have to sit down with the two of them and say, "You know, this stuff's funny, but you got, you know." And I'm sure Willie would pay these at some point uh, on his end and hear the same hell. Freddie actually started this, you know, working on this book years um, before, you know, he and I started working on it. He had worked on it, um, basically telling his life story, and then when he'd be out on the road with Merle and he would work on it or he'd bring it home and work on it. And, um, so basically Freddie wrote his own story. Jake and I just kind of filled in all the places where um, Jake did a lot of the interviewing, um, making sure that, you know, all the stories kind of coincide with everybody else. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what Jake's telling me. What do you want me to say? <laughs> I suppose to build on what Catherine is saying, you know, Rolling Stone magazine called this a uh, a poignant and often poignant oral history of one of the unsung heroes of country music. And then 
American songwriter in the write-up they did just recently on the book, really in print, so it was really like bonafide, as did CMT when he passed, said, you know, and one of the messages with the book we're driving home from the country audience is that Freddie is really responsible for really introducing Dixieland jazz into country music for the first time. And that's an important thing if you listen to today's country and how regular you'll hear turnarounds or different arrangements that reflect that. And Merle, in the fact that it was injected really voluntarily into his sound once they started writing together and playing together, um, there's a, a so there's a story there. Freddie's power chords, which are also in the book, that we really analyze them through all his band members. There's a soundtrack, but if you go back way back in time, there's also friendships in this book that are inspiring. Like Willie Nelson and Freddie met in the, the '50s under the tutelage of Paul Buskirk, and uh, Willie and Merle, uh, excuse me, Freddie and Merle met first. What Casper was 1961 or 62? 1961. Yeah, these are and they reconnected in 1979, but you're 878. But you're talking about lifelong friendships that then extended through the Parkinson's, um, through all the hard times, the good times, the bad times. So calling it the spree of 83, it really was a, a wild story. They lived a wild rock and roll lifestyle out there on the houseboats in the 80s and in the 70s in the casinos. Freddie was king of Reno. But at the same time, there's a lot of real life stories in this book that are equally as heartfelt, you know what I mean, and, and funny. I don't know, it's just really, it's really a book I'm proud of. I, we worked nine years on it, and Freddie did write a lot of it in journal that we found later. We also had three years on the bus with him when his Parkinson's was to where he could still talk. But Catherine had also worked with him beforehand on a manuscript. I got at a hospital, actually, where this began was 2012 for me with them in the fall in September at a um, VA in Nashville, at the VA hospital, Vanderbilt. And they thought Freddie had gone into the hospital and wasn't coming out. And he'd actually been coming here to do an interview for the National Songwriter book, which he then became chapter one in the book. And uh, I thought it was a film when I looked through this. I mean, it, it was a wild story. So we've been working since 2019. I went to Texas, thank God, in the fall before COVID hit. And we uh, basically went up on Willie's Hill in Spicewood and went up to Luck headquarters and went to the Kundix headquarters and went to Pooties and Everywhere that Freddie was a, a local, he has his own picking pavilion at the La Hacienda and uh, really wrote the screenplay. And I interviewed about 30 new people. Um, I mean, it's a crazy, there's, there's probably 60 interviews in this book, I would think, maybe 55, 60. And there's that many people, both because obviously we wanted Freddie to have his full story told when he couldn't really speak for himself, but also... Catherine dug people up from, she's like, all right, I got the bartender from Diamond Gyms in Minnesota, which is this place Freddie would play in the winter with swinging chat, trapeze women swinging from the ceilings. She found the original bartender and main waitress, head waitress there. They both remembered Freddie vividly and gave us a whole chapter of interviews. She found me guys like Milton Quackenbush, who played with him in the 60s, um, Ralph Sanford, people from the original Powerhouse Four. And what's remarkable too is that I think this is the first time in a country memoir that there's also an official book soundtrack. You can listen live and in studio for 50 years of music and hear Freddie with these guys playing Dixieland jazz, playing these crazy shows they play. And uh, then we had people from the 80s and the 90s that we hadn't talked to the first time where we, we sort of tried this. And uh, so it's really a complete story. It really tells the front to back Freddie Powers 60 year mm -hmm. career. He was a Marine. Mm -hmm. He was a... Um, I mean, God, the stories go on and on with this gentleman. Tell, tell Catherine, tell him about Jack Ruby. That's funny. <laughs> well, he and Jack Ruby were really good friends. Uh, Jack Ruby had a club over in Dallas, and Freddie had his club over in Arlington, Texas. And they would swap out entertainment, and Freddie would go and play at Jack's club. And they just became really good friends over the years. And um, actually, Jack even gave Freddie a little puppy. and. Puppy was sick and Jack came back and they both sit and cried over the puppy, you know, having to be put down. It was, uh, uh, they had a great relationship, you know. Yeah. And um, Freddie would argue with you if you tried to tell him, you know, that Jack was a part of some conspiracy. It's like, no, Jack, Jack was a really big patriot and he admired um, Jackie and John F. Kennedy. And so when um, John F. got killed. Well, Jack just felt like it was his responsibility to take out the killer. So, yeah. but uh, Freddie would he would argue and tell you there was no conspiracy behind it. It was just that was just Jack. And that was the '60s, and that's even before he had a, his own club. Even then, he'd been on the Today Show, the Tonight Show. He'd been signed to so major labels. 
he went to uh, the Nevada back then the casino circuits were, you know, from Elvis to, to anybody who was starting out or big played and he worked his way up and there's crazy stories like Freddie to raise publicity, him and his band members all wrapped themselves. It's a scene in the film, this elderly couple's driving along in a convertible coupe, just enjoying their retirement. And ah, these guys run up on the road wrapped in these looking like aliens in this sort of uh, tinfoil. And, and, you know, Catherine can tell you what their motivation was, but it, 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 it was funny, the things this guy would do to, to bring in the crowd. Yeah, Freddie was all about publicity, and that was during the Roswell, you know, things going on. And so uh, they just decided they were going to be aliens for the night, thinking they were get some major publicity. And they set up the this um, speaker, you know, where you could hear this, you know, like a, sp a spaceship, you know, and um and would run out in front of the traffic and all this, thinking there's going to get major publicity. And they woke up the next day into the newspaper and there wasn't a word in it. So, I mean, but he was always trying for publicity. Yeah. And, and what, what, <laughs> what happened eventually is he worked his way up um, to re, to become a, a headliner at El Dorado, basically the house band and house performer there. And of course, everybody would come into town to play with him. So if Willie Nelson was across the road at a casino or whomever, they'd come over and the whole casino gambling crowd would follow him over to see it. That's how big a draw they were. But on his own, Freddie would play all night, even whether he was in his band and then they would have after shows. He would take the whole crowd upstairs to party with him or uh, and he had power of the pen, which Catherine can tell you meant an incredible amount of power. He had a, a suite at the top of the place that was his and power of the pen, ambassador goodwill and the mobsters he hung out with. She could say it's crazy. Yeah, Freddie, uh, back in those days, you know, the early 60s and when the uh, casinos, they were owned by the mafia pretty much. And um, so they would all be employees or, you know, work in the casino and they'd have names like, you know, the beverage manager, the hotel manager, entertainment director. And Freddie did, he had the power of the pen so he could sign anything. You know, if you wanted to get a room, he could sign you for a room and set you up with meals and tickets to the shows and stuff. And he could even get you markers on the table if you, you know, which basically that's a humongous thing to be able to sign for somebody to get a marker on one of the tables. So yeah, yeah. Freddie was uh, quite the ambassador. And uh, <laughs> he kept the parties going. All night. His and job, his, he would say that his job was to take everybody up to his room and get them pretty well uh, drunk and then take them back down to the tables to gamble. Yeah. And, and bear in mind, too, the whole time this is going on, this gentleman is, you know, he wins 1978, you know, uh, 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 Entertainer of the Year Award. He's, you know, he, he was a star there. There's a story in the 90s, which jumps ahead a little, the early 90s, Catherine and Freddie get married and they're up in their honeymoon. What was it? Was it? I always get this wrong. Where were you guys actually up there? Which mountain range? Well, we were on the Diamond Mountain Range in the Plumas National Forest. Okay. This is but we got married. In Lovelock, Nevada, which was in the Ruby Mountains, right outside of Elko, Nevada. So, and it is Nevada. You can tell Jake's from up north because he calls it Nevada. Yeah. In any event, there, there by Freddie by then was such a, a legend on the casino scene that what made this funny was they're sitting around a campfire, and in the script we depicted that they're leaning in to have their like romance, romantic honeymoon kiss. With in reality, Don, his brother was there and somebody else, but they're all getting ready to fish, and this troop of of uh, you know sheriffs with shotguns and everything they were chasing this gamer named claude dallas who had shot a game warden and he was like an illegal trapper and a menace up in this mountain range they come running up on freddie and catherine was there she can tell you what happened but they recognized him <laughs> well they come running up on us of course and um they've got guns pointed at us and um but they realized that, you know, who Freddie was, that, you know, the sheriff did. He had seen Freddie down in the casinos in Elko and stuff. And Freddie looks up at him and he asked him if that gun was loaded. And he said, well, it wouldn't be any good to me if it wasn't. He said, well, would you mind removing it from my leg? But once they realized that it was Freddie, you know, of course, they, you know, were real kind and. And they moved, they moved on. on, but it shows you how he was recognized up in a mountain in the middle of Nevada because he had. And, and then, you know, if you go over to if you go down to, to Lake, you know, back to Reno, there's a really pivotal meeting 
There was a pastime called picking that weaves itself throughout Freddie's entire uh, life story, whether he was doing it with, you know, the musicians in his band after the show at brothels like Mona's or whether he was doing it on the road or whether he was doing it in these casino lounges where, where Willie would come over. They, or he would go to Willie's hotel room and they would pick. And Catherine could tell you there's this, this really faded sort of serendipitous intersection of, uh, you really could call it musical fate that happened in 1978 when Merle Haggard knocks on this door and she could tell you, but Freddie and him becomes kindred from there on, man. And when Merle walks in, the first thing he says to Freddie, you know, Willie goes to introduce him and he turns to Freddie, he goes, I like what you did on um, Willie's album because Freddie had just produ uh, produced... Um, that somewhere over the rainbow album, and um, and they got into picking, and they picked for, and Merle will tell you they picked for. Well, he would have told you for 16 hours, and then all of a sudden Willie looks up and said, "Hey guys, it's I got to go to work." So they all went back to work and did their jobs, and then when it was all over with, they ended up right back in Willie's um, hotel room and went right back to the picking, and from that day on. Freddie and, and Merle was either drive back and forth. It'd be either Freddie going up to Reading or Merle going down to Reno. And they did a lot of picking until finally Merle asked Freddie, he said, why don't you um, buy a houseboat and move up here on Lake Shasta and uh, we work together. And um, Freddie, of course, looked at, at Merle and told him, he said, Merle, I don't have the kind of money you got. Merle's going, well, money I've got. So Moreau actually goes out and buys Freddie this houseboat, $85,000, and parks it right next to him. And um, after that, they were inseparable. Spree of 83 began. And the, the significance of those houseboats in proximity to each other is when they weren't partying, which I'll let Catherine get to in a sec, they were writing number one songs together. And it began at, at really at 50. Freddie had written some songs before and gotten beaten out of the, the writing credits without getting into that too heavily. He basically, Merle discovers this great story she tells about, I always get uh, uh, get lucky with you. And that really began this long run of number ones. They called it the Spree of 83 because when they weren't partying, they were writing. Uh, when they weren't on the road, they were writing. When they weren't picking, they were writing. But they were always together creatively in some capacity, even when they were partying. Do you mind telling them that always get lucky with you story? It's a, it's a charming one. Well, it, actually, Freddie had written um, Always Get Lucky With You years before he met Merle. And um, he called it one night on stage. And this is why Freddie always says, be your own judge. He, he called it one night on stage. And then one of the guys in the band said, oh, no, Freddie, not that song. Um, I don't like that song. So Freddie ditched that song. And um, it wasn't until years later that he was up there with Merle. And he was sitting around and he was just working on it. And Merle walked in and asked him what he was working on. And Freddie, you know, basically said, oh, it's just a song. I don't know if it's any good or not. And Merle's asking the title. And he said, I think I'm going to call it I Always Get Lucky With You. And Merle jumped up and said, hell, Freddie, the title alone is the number one. So they ended up sitting there working on that song and um, basically structured it more for Merle and took out a couple of verses, which Merle even regretted one of the verses, taking it out. You know, it was like probably one of the better verses. But um, it became number one um, for George Jones and then Song of the Year with Merle. Yeah. And that, and that just shows you the, the, you know, and then also with Freddie, and he talks in the book about Natural High, which is kind of his signature song, if you talk about solo songs that he wrote. Um, and others, a friend of California, of course, there's, there's, you know, let's just each other around the room and that. But Natural High really came at the encouragement of Merle. To, to tell him, it, you know, and, and that's a, another part of the story that's so inspiring is you see this guy at 50 completely start his life over. He goes and kind of peaked with the lounge thing. Now he becomes, you know, his songs are heard all over the radio. I heard them growing up with my grandfather, you know, um, and, uh, and all in the game and all these records. But you also get the real like story behind how all these new songs, there's a whole catalog that wouldn't have maybe existed. I don't know. She would know better than I um, if these others that became out of that friendship, you know. Oh, yeah. It was just like um, Little Hotel Room, you know, Freddie wrote that one. And um, and actually, when he first wrote it and when he finished it, he played it for Danny Bird Reynolds, which was his uh, um, bass player at the time. And the first thing that he said, he goes, you know, that sounds like a Ray Charles song. And lo and behold, it ended up one day they were all up in New York and Merle walks in and he said, hey, we got anything for Ray Charles and could record. And of course, Freddie jumps up and he goes, yeah. 
And uh, next thing you know, Freddie was sitting on the piano stool next to Ray Charles, teaching him that song chord for chord and word for word. And the um, sad part about it is nobody walked around with cameras back in those days. So there's not a single picture of Freddie sitting on that piano stool with um, Ray Charles. He was proud of that as a songwriter, though. It shows you within from 1978-79 until 1988, I think, which is when the song was actually recorded by Ray Charles. The, the evolution of this whole catalog, the, this guy was prolific. I mean, they were writing hundreds and hundreds of songs for the, for the ones that got recorded. And you would see them on Ralph Emery. In fact, on the book soundtrack, we have an excerpt of him and Ralph, Freddie and Merle and Ralph Emery sitting there. And it, it wasn't like this guy had, had to work to become a household name. He became one like overnight in country music. And, and not just as Merle's sidekick, but also for his Dixieland jazz, because you started to see that in, in the way that the strangers, you know, and at Freddie touring with them and playing in the group and how that really became a part of their sound. Catherine could elaborate on that more than me, certainly, but it. it... Well, it was, it, 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 you know, like you said, it became a part of their sound. And um, Freddie was just, you know, he was always there with, with Merle when they, they had ideas. It didn't take, it was like, let's chase each other around the room. That song was probably written in, you know, probably 10 or 15 minutes and it became a number one. And it all was because the gal that Freddie was running with at the time said when they they were on their way from Canada back to Nashville. And she said, Freddie, when we get to the uh, hotel, I'm going to chase you around the room. And Merle and Freddie looked at each other and it didn't take them no time. And they had written that number one. So, yeah, there's also really funny road stories in the book. And just, you know, that's why when we talk about the number of people we spoke to, we have like principal members of the strangers, you know, uh, Merle's group that to attest to all this. Um, but, you know, there's funny stories like Mark Os Oswald tells the story uh, who back then was a tour manager of they pull into Boston. It's like a $40,000 cash deposit. He's going to pick up in a money bag. And he, they parked the bus over at the Boston Commons, which is that big famous park you saw in Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams and them are sitting on the bench. It's a famous, it's basically the big central park of Boston. And they get bored on the bus. So they get off the bus and they go over into this little, little fountain square thing and start picking on the guitars. And Oswald gets back right about the time there's 300 people, he estimated, standing around this like crowd and all these pissed off street performers because all their business is being taken over. And sitting there, he goes into the center and Catherine can tell you what happened from there. But he comes into the center and sees this crowd standing there watching these guys in sweatsuits and sweatpants and hats picking away. Uh, and what happened from there with the hat? I think it <laughs> Mark walks out there, you know, and he just takes his hat off and throws it down. And all the crowd started, you know, throwing in money and and all this. So when they got back over to the bus, they're counting out all this money, you know, and dividing it up. and. It come to like $40 a person. And um, all of a sudden Merle's like, hey, I want my cut. And so it was uh, it was like Merle was more worried about getting that $40. Than the 40000 Opposed to, <laughs> you know, the $40,000 that Mark had just picked up. And, then, you know, there were also times like the, the song Silver Eagle Freddie wrote about being on the road with Merle because Freddie wrote on his bus most of the time. And he, in fact, one of the journals that Catherine unearthed from another archive in a storage unit, we found Freddie actually from that. I'm sitting in the lounge of Merle's bus right now. It's nine o'clock, whatever. We're on the way to blah. But it, it it talked about how when they would pull up places, because Merle really experienced this huge boom in the 80s with, of course, the advent of videos and the new hits him and Freddie were writing. It really injected something into his sound. He talks about he uh, got over this relationship and they kind of wrote their way out of it um place called uh, looking for a place to fall apart another song but he talks about the importance of the fact that oftentimes freddie was the one who could get merle to go on stage and play catherine can attest more to this than i but it was it was impressive the friendship and what freddie's role became really is come on you know merle's kind of uh what would you how would you describe it well actually you know it, it was and, it, and even biff would testify to this that freddie was like a problem solver and um if Merle didn't feel like, you know, wanting to go play or he'd be ready to turn around and go back home or whatever, Freddie was the one that could talk him out of it. And there'd be times that uh, Merle would be laying in his bed saying he didn't want to go play and um, they couldn't wake him up. And Biff would, or, or Norm would say, Freddie, go get Merle up. And Freddie would walk in there and rattle off Merle's uh, prison number. 
I can't remember the number, but he would yell at that prison number and say, hit the floor, Merle would jump up, you know, like, he'd go, Freddie, you just scared me to that, you know, uh, but Merle would get out there and go play, but, you know, Freddie was the problem solver, and he would always be the one that they would go to if they had an issue that needed to be worked out, plus, if you were in a down mood or whatever, he was also that comedian that knew how to bring that all out of you and turn your bad day into a happy day, you know? So, so Freddie had a lot of, he wore a lot of hats when he was out there with Merle. I always said that Freddie was so witty, but his whole family was that way. They're all just super witty. And I mean, on the spur of the moment, you just be sitting there laughing, going, I would have never thought of saying it that way or, or whatever, but Freddie was, he was a comedian at heart, but he was also very witty. Yeah, and another another thing within his comedy that uh, you know in the live albums, the live in Reno and the live in Vegas '75 that are on Spotify right now, along with in the book, uh, it's jumping ahead to say once Freddie got Parkinson's and could not play guitar anymore, he became known for his joke telling. Willie's Fourth of July, uh, you know, picnic in front of ten thousand people, or he'd be in Europe. He had his own cruise for his Parkinson's Foundation, and he he was really cracking audiences up. Then Catherine could tell you some of his bits; they were hilarious. <laughs> well, the 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 one, especially when it come to the Parkinson's, because Freddie always he tried to keep it humorous. You know, um, he knew that he had this disease and there was no um, cure for it or anything. So Freddie would do his best to, you know, try and, and use that. And he would sometimes, you know, get out on stage and he'd sing that first song. And then he would turn back and say, I know y'all are all looking at me like I'm nervous, but I promise you, I've been up here doing this 50 years nervous. I'm not. And he would tell him, you know, that he's got Parkinson's. And then he would tell him, you know, his little joke routine would be that Merle would um, tell him that as many people as they had to meet and shake hands. Freddie was already warmed up and the bartender didn't have to shake Freddie's drinks up for him. He had, could shake them up himself. And um, and then he would call it, he would say that if you laid out on the beach to get a suntan for Freddie, they would call it shake and bake. And that he was a human vibrator, no batteries needed, and he would invite any woman to come and sit in his lap to attest to it. <laughs> so. Yeah. When he got Parkinson's, one thing that's really fun in the book, too, for as much a struggle as that disease was, and we bear all of that, that's very rawly uh, attested to by the nurses, by for his nurse, his road warriors that would come out on the road like Cass Hunter and Carrie and Freddie the Third, his grandson, and, and all would help Catherine keep Freddie on the road. The important, I mean, they had a hospital bed in the front of this bus. And would just keep him out there going from induction, Hall of Fame induction to Hall of Fame induction or show to show. They'd bring him on on stage in the wheelchair in front of 10,000 people, Big and Rich or Willie or whoever. But even Freddie's own jokes, and I was there for quite a few of them. Uh, some of them we can't tell on, on the podcast, but uh, he, this guy had the best sense of humor about this condition that made everybody else in the room who might have been even having a hard time because I watched Catherine do everything from be on the phone with Willie Nelson in one hand or, or Mark John Rich or somebody talking about the bus and turning Freddie over or getting him set up so he could talk to people or moving him from her back over or tell him what did you used to do when you'd walk him? That was extraordinary to watch. Well, when we, when he first, you know, started with the Parkinson's, you know, you lose your ability to walk and um, your legs will get, you know, kind of just freeze up on you. They call it freezing. And so I would walk behind Freddie and I would kick his heels um, and, and get him, you know, keep him moving. But, and to the point to where when he couldn't do that, I would put his feet on top of my feet and we would walk together. And, um, and that of course ended up, you know, um, me carrying him and um, doing the wheelchair and all that. But we, our whole thing was whatever it took to keep Freddie, um, not just his, uh, uh, you know, quantity of life, but with quality of life, where he was enjoying as much of his life. I mean, to, I, we even had Titty Tuesday at the hospital, and um, I'd have, you'd be surprised at some of the nurses that would even give Freddie a flash, or any girls that came up that day to visit him would have to give him a flash, you know? He had an 80th and, uh, birthday with a stripper. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, for his 80th birthday, John Rich and Big Kenny um, hired a stripper to come and um, dance for Freddie for his 80th birthday, which his sister 
um, was in the audience. She wasn't too pleased about it, but um, I mean, it was a gift. And um, we and and, and Freddie and Freddie gave her he gave he got to give uh, the little girl a spanking fifty everyone eighty times. He you could see his little hand just pounding back there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a rock and roll lifestyle. They kept, I hate that cliche, but with them, it was really true. They kept the party going and, and there was always loads of people on the bus. And even amid all of that, it was remarkable to watch because she would wear these eight hats and do all of these matrix of things to keep all the medical stuff there, but yet not let his, because you think, you know, one of the messages in this book is, you know, you have Muhammad Ali, you have Michael J. Fox, you have Robin Williams, who blessed his heart, took his life. You have Freddie and country, there's really no one else. You really have very few people that have had Parkinson's that have stayed as visible. And the important thing about that is that, you know, even coming all the way up here from Florida for the National Songwriter Release Party, there was eight, nine people in that band, you know, and 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 the people that were devoted to helping keeping Freddie out there uh, is also if you go way back in time, you know, she was talking about how he was an engineer and a problem solver. That's an important part of his life. But the earlier parts of his life, the, the life this man lived before this. He built his own airplane on the dock of Merle's um, houseboat. And then, you know, Catherine could tell you about the scene, an aircraft carrier, and they'd fly up in the air. And, and the first scene in the screenplay, in fact, I'll let her tell you, but it's it's crazy. Well, Freddie would, Freddie would, you know, first off, he did. He built that airplane up on Merle's um, dock there on the houseboats. And then, um, and he taught himself how to fly. And, and then he took it um, off the wheels and put it on pontoons. So then once again, he was having to learn how to fly, you know, land it on water and stuff. But he would fly around and he would either be looking for shad because they knew that if the shad was running, that's where the f good fishing was going to be. Or if he would spot, you know, um, naked women up there partying, he would radio back to Merle. And Merle cons called himself the uh, control tower on the ground with the hotel troubadour. And um, he would tell him, Merle, I just spotted a bunch of naked women over in Jones Valley Cove. And Merle would radio back, I'll meet you at Jones Valley Cove. And they would go over there and have this great party. I mean, but they would go up to Pitt River and spend days at a time in Merle and a bunch of girls and um, party. Write songs. I mean, write songs, party, and Frank Sinatra, do a lot of picking. Yeah, Frank Sinatra called at one point uh, and invited uh, Merle and, and Freddie to come play on the White House lawn for Reagan. And, and what did they tell him? Merle told him, he said, we're, we're too busy. Yeah, I mean, he actually told Frank Sinatra, um, you know, he was like, why don't y'all come up here and play on the lawn with me at the White House? And Merle just turned to him and he said, uh, Freddie and I are just too busy. But they had a party going on. And uh, and the whole thing was is Merle and all that Rat Pack they wanted to be where Freddie and Merle were instead of being on the White House lawn. Yeah, I think that sounds yeah. better. And then yeah. you know, and then if, <laughs> yeah, and then if you get into the '90s and when they moved back to Austin, you know, within a, within a few years of I think they moved back in '94 or five, and in '98, Freddie Freddie had his own day, like in Austin day, the Freddie Powers day, and they had a television show that they ran in their living room, the first of its kind ever in that state. It was a songwriters show hosted by songwriters that interviewed songwriters. And it was, and Catherine co-produced it. They shot it with 200 people in the audience right in their living room. It was crazy, right on Willie's golf course. Yeah, we lived in the Bill McDavid's home and um, Freddie and Bill McDavid put the Rogers and Hemorrhage show together. And, um, and it was actually a Cable Ace nominee. And, um, but they would interview songwriters, but they kind of kept it trying to be more like an educational program where they would discuss about how to write a song and what um, inspired them to write the song and how they would get it produced or how they would get it to an art artist and stuff. So they they kind of kept that, you know, more of an educational type program for other songwriters. They would perform as well, and and they had a lot of really legendary yeah. songwriters like Floyd Tillman, Johnny Gimble, of course, the fiddle player, uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard. Who were some of the others that you were mentioning the other day? Uh, well, well, of course, it was uh, Willie and and Merle and Steve Fromhoff, Rusty Weir. Actually, the very last shows that um, Floyd Tillman and I believe Rusty Weir did was the Rogers and Hammerhead show. And then, of course, and of course, we had Steve Fromhope and, um, like I said, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Aaron Barker, Doug Supernall. We, we pretty much had 
quite a few of the, and they all had to have, and the one thing is they all had to have at least, you know, a, a couple of number ones under their belt in order to be able to get on the show. But we had Larry Gatlin, Larry Gatlin, we, he was such a hoot. Larry Gatlin's a big old hoot. I mean, it was at one point the the clock had chimed and Larry quietened the room up and he's like, I wrote that, which he really didn't. But I mean, it was just kind of funny how Larry was, he, he he's really a comic himself. Yeah. Sonny Throckmorton is another name I wanted to mention. Oh, yeah. In that. Yes. And Sonny has yeah. Sonny's remained a dear friend of the family for for well, till now. And but also he's in the he's in the soundtrack. He's in the book. Um, in fact, if you go to the soundtrack, which is the Spree of '83, the the Life of Times of Freddie Powers official book soundtrack on Spotify, you can listen to actual performances from the show um, with people playing. And and there's there's Willie Nelson and Bobby Nelson in one of them. Um, Merle's and another Big and Rich is on there. Just the soundtrack is populated with people that Freddie played with throughout his career, uh, Mary Sarah. And the other thing that that TV show was, was really a, a door opener for a lot of people. Pauline Reese, who's in the book, talks about it. And others that would come to that show to meet people or to just be in the audience because it was kind of a networking uh, hotspot as well. Yeah, and that's true. Rattlesnake Annie, you know, there was, um, they would, all, you know, like you said, they would be able to come to the shows and then network with uh, people that were there. And um, so it was, it was, and with the same with the the picking parties, we had the we still are having the Freddie Powers picking parties. I, I still do two of them a year. Um, we had the on the final Sunday of the South by Southwest, we do the Freddie Powers South by South, Southwest picking party, and um, we have probably about 15, 20 acts that we put on during the day, and then we do um, New Year's Day, which is the Freddie Powers Black Eyed Pea and Cabbage picking party, and Everybody will bring their black eyed peas and cabbage and we'll do a little tasting and then listen to a lot of music. And um, we still have a lot of great people that come like Tanya Tucker still comes. Um, last year before Alex Harvey passed, um, he, he's the one who wrote Delta Dawn for Tanya Tucker. Um, he, he would come and we've had David Lee. We've had, you know, I, it amazes me how many people still come and those picket parties when we first started they was all centered around freddie freddie would sit in the center of the circle and there would be 30 or more musicians circled around him and he would give everybody leads and everybody would take a turn and all that to his final years the picking parties became instead of um, coming in performing with freddie to performing for freddie and um so, like I said, as long as the La Hacienda there in Austin have the Freddie Powers Picking Pavilion, um, Teresa Fig and I will keep those picking parties going. Yeah. And and the other thing about all of these things we're talking about is that why we wrote this book as an oral history is because Freddie wanted it to be, you know, there's a lot of first person from him, but Catherine was there for all these things. But we also really, you really feel like you're in a room of friends when you read this book of his, because you hear from people who were at these events and who tell really funny stories. There's a funny story because when, on top of everything else, Freddie was quite a golfer along with Willie. They would golf together on Willie's course, but also there's these legendary things in Texas called Coach Daryl Royal golf tournaments at, at the after parties where a lot of songwriters attended along with astronauts and actors and movie stars. And they would all get together afterward and sit in these big circles and play in these picking parties. And, uh, Matthew McConaughey showed up one year. Catherine can tell you where it went from there. We get a real recounting of that from someone who was sitting right there. And it was when McConaughey was first out and Daisy Confused and the shirtless stuff and all that. What, it, what happened? It's, it's <laughs> well, he followed Freddie around all weekend long. Um, and it was so funny because they'd be sitting there with their picking their songs and Matthew would be standing over there shirtless using his body as the Congos. And, you know, by the end of the evening, the poor little guy's chest would just be beat red from him being the Congos on his chest, you know, but, uh, but the, you know, the picket parties and we, and we still try to keep the Coach Daryl Royal rules is um, when the performers are performing, it is time for you to hush up. And if you don't hush up, you're shown how to hit the door and get out. So, um but, you know, it's just, you know, showing the respect to the entertainers. And and that was one of the things that was, you know, important to coach. So I keep those rules and I still go by those rules. Yeah, it's a fantastic yeah. rule. Freddie had a, 
It's a great rule, but it's also one that Freddie had an edict about in his own pick and parties. And and the thing that's important, I guess, is him as a mentor to songwriters. Mary Sarah, when he had Parkinson's, one of his last projects, I'll hand this off to Catherine in a sec because she helped co-produce, executive produce it. But it was amazing. This gentleman was still giving a foot in the door to people, even when he had Parkinson's and, and his, his, tell him about this project. It was amazing. Well, that was something that Freddie was. He was really good about trying to open doors um, for people. He's I, I've even known him to pull one of his own songs off of an album and replace it with somebody else's to you know open up a door for him. But um, his final project was producing this album with Mary Sarah, who went on to be on The Voice, um, where she is doing duets with. Um, Actually, there's 13 people on there, and she's doing duets with Merle and Willie and Ray uh, Ray Price, sorry, Ray Price, Tanya Tucker, uh, Dolly Parton, Lynn Anderson, the Oak Ridge Boys, I mean, big and rich. And um, Freddie was the executive producer on that, along with Kent Wells. And um, that opened a lot of doors for Mary Sarah and is still opening doors for her with that album. But his also in his final days and his the last song that he wrote was he, down here on the beach at the Florabama. Um, Mark Sherrill, who wrote Oh Red for Blake Shelton, was doing a songwriting thing with um, Mary Sarah. And he called and he said, you know, why don't you bring Freddie over and he'd just be in the room. And um, if we get something out of him, it would be great. Well, a few days before that we went over there, Freddie knew what was going to happen. And I would hear him blurt out stuff, you know, and I would go and ask him what, what I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. And he would just say, I'm just thinking. And um, so when we got over to the room, as soon as we walked in, Freddie just started rolling out lines. And Mary Sarah, the first thing she could find was paper plates and a pen. And she started writing these lines down as fast as she could. And um, when they finished the song, they called me in and played it for me. And I mean, I just, it it hit me so hard because I realized Freddie had been laying over in that hospital bed, writing this song in his head the whole time. And so when we walked in that room, he was ready. And the song is called Dreaming. You know, the other thing that's kind of remarkable about, not kind of, certainly remarkable about his Freddie Powers chords is that in the book for the first time, if you're a music theory nerd, guitar player that wants to learn that way, or if you want to hear them, there's also a six song acoustic, like guitar lesson EPs, the best way to describe it, We Unearthed, where Freddie's sitting there teaching, it's the actual tape he was teaching his Rogers and Hammerhead partner, uh, Bill McDavid, how to play guitar with, and he calls out chords, and I mean, he had a very unique very acknowledged within country. Frank Lydell is one of the interviews in the book. Miranda Lambert's a longtime producer. He just referred to it in another interview for another book. And I said, tell me about that. And he got into an explanation of just growing up, how learning guitar in Texas, he said, you couldn't learn guitar in Texas without learning the Freddie Powers chords. They were a signature thing there. So his his influence as a guitar player, Willie Nelson called him probably, what did she say, Catherine? He's one, one of the two or three best guitar players that, that he's ever worked with. And Merle, Merle, yeah. one of the top two or three rhythm, best rhythm guitar players in country. And so we really hope that this book and this project, along with the upcoming film, with the actors that are going to play him and Merle and Willie and Paul Buzzkirk and these others, it's going to be an amazing cast and thing, are all going to be real musicians who can really play this stuff. So it shows you the complexity of his musical mind, along with that of his songwriting mind, along with that of his entertaining comedic mind, along with that of his business mind. Um, he reinvented himself so many times through so many different decades successfully, not just in a sort of token novelty capacity that, that, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, when he passed away, Rolling Stone had run an obituary and I emailed the guy that wrote the story and begged him to do a follow-up so that we could promote the book. And j what brought that around to talk about his song catalog, John Doe from X, which is one of the most legendary Los Angeles punk bands ever. Uh, uh, and another gentleman did a cover. What, what was it of? Uh... Hayes, Hayes Carl. Hayes Carl. And yeah. And, um, and they did um, always get lucky with you. And it's kind of almost like a punk country type version of it i mean it it's really kind of cool yeah it's like it's like when johnny cash and rick rubin linked up for those american recordings kind of in the sense that it but it shows you how freddie's songs stand the test of time and no matter what genre you're in there's he's got fans across all of these different genres and even some of the people in the book too that we talked to 
like Lucas Souza is an example. We wanted someone who's now coming up that came out of these picking parties in just the last few years. And he was one. And he said, I wouldn't have gotten my shot. You know, I'm now a regional touring act and making the way up without Freddie and Catherine and those in those picking parties. And uh, there's a four year, four or five or six year old girl at some point in the book in the 90s who had a picture of Freddie on her wall. Uh, Fred, Catherine can tell you the story, but he had fans yeah, that, all ages. Yeah. Yeah, that was Lauren Beller. And actually, Lauren Beller, when we met her, she was like five years old. And um, she was, and we got this video of her. And at the time, she was only like three years old in this video. And she's doing that song, uh, Texas. There's a pair of blue eyes down in Texas, you know. And um, it was so cute because she's rolling all over the couch and everything, playing with her doll. But she never missed a single note in that song and she performed that song and so the first time we go to meet her we're sitting there talking with her parents and everything and all of a sudden Laura Beller grabs Freddie by the hand and says Freddie will you go to my bedroom with me which we all kind of laughed you know go to the bedroom and we walk in there and she's got two pictures that hung over her bed one was Floyd Tillman and the other one was Freddie and um but, you know, he, he worked with Lauren and um, she's now a professor, to, you know, of music um, actually here in Alabama. And um, so, you know, Freddie, it, it didn't matter if they had music in their heart or in their blood, Freddie would help them work through it. And, um, and they, especially with the girls, the first thing you would always tell them is that you've got to learn to play guitar. If you don't, you're going to be a slave to the band instead of the band playing for you. So he he's always was a good teacher and trying to do things like that with, you know, the up and coming. And then with, with his song catalog, to talk about its reverberations overseas, you know, they were taking him to Europe as recent as 2010. He passed in 2016. He played the Equiblues Festival in 2008 and 2010. And Catherine can tell you both about the selling out part but also this remarkable story where even within his shaking, he was still singing and the audience and the band were hoping to hold him up. And I'll let her tell it. She was there. It was a, it's a really moving. Story. Well, they, it was like, they, you know, he got started into the show and about midway through with the Parkinson's, you start shaking and swaying and you could slide out of your chair. And um, so they, had, and they had made this beautiful chair for Freddie to set up on. It looked like he was at a King, you know, King of the world sitting up on this big chair and he started sliding out of it. And so they just stopped the show and everybody, they took off their belts and they actually went and tied Freddie, you know, belted Freddie into this chair. And he went on and performed the, the show. And um, which of course the audience just went crazy over it and watching them, um, they line dance to everything and watching them line dance to looking for a place to fall apart, which is one of the slowest songs you could come up with to be line dancing to, but they did. And um, and it was funny because they they couldn't speak the language, you know, they don't speak English, but they could follow along and they could sing those songs with Freddie word for, for word, you know, and um, there was actually one time I got out in the middle of the with them and as they're singing with Freddie and the words I'm pantomiming or, you know, what it would um, it's like doing charades. And, and telling them what the, the song that they were actually singing, you know, but they knew the words. They couldn't speak English, but they knew the words to the songs. Yeah. And at the end of the show, I think of one of them, didn't he tell the, the promoter, tell you it was like the best? Well, yeah, the promoter came up to me and I mean, he just, he, big guy. And he just looked down and it was almost like he had tears in his eyes when he said, first time. And I love, you know, the way they speak. And he goes, first time I ever sold out. And I just thought, God, that was so special. But um, and, and, and that was also, you know, when we would go, it, it was like you would take um, the, the band. You would have two like two stars and the band would play for both. So though that very last um, tour that we did, um, Freddie took Amy Nelson, which is Willie Nelson's daughter. And so it was um, Freddie Powers and then. Um, Amy and it was so funny because the the newspaper said Billy D Willie <laughs> when they introduced um, Amy Nelson you know the daughter of Willie Nelson but they said Billy D Willie. <laughs>
And you know, they had a cruise too. When he got when he got diagnosed with the illness, they'd been doing. Freddie wrote the uh, even years before this, they were involved. Freddie was heavily involved in charity and Catherine. They they wrote the uh, he wrote the everybody deserves a chance to win. No, it's everybody has a chance to win. Everybody has a chance to win, and it's for the Nevada Special Olympics. Um, we were very involved in the Special Olympics. We did all of their um, school dances. We would take the band and go to their schools. We had bowling tournaments with them. We had ski tournaments. Um, we did everything. Every weekend, we were somehow involved with the Special Olympics out there in Nevada. Yeah. And then when he got Parkinson's, uh, they, they formed their own Parkinson's foundation and Freddie would have, you know, everything from golf tournaments with, with, well, she, Catherine could tell you, but it was a remarkable thing. They did even, you know, they had a cruise, a Freddie Powers Parkinson's cruise. I mean, and, and Al was really surprised at all of the musicians. Um, matter of fact, the guy who owns Don's Depot, John there in Austin, um, he came, uh, to the, on the cruise with us and, um, he did a show. Matter of fact, Freddie and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary, um, there at Don's Depot um, in Austin. I'm, uh, is Don's Depot even still there? It is. It is. Yeah. That's wonderful. Don's I love still, that yeah, place. Yeah, still great. <laughs> yes, it is. I love that place. That's a great spot. I definitely appreciate the line dancing story as someone who used to frequent a line dancing bar out in Miami <laughs> of all places. But <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was always good. But yeah, I'm like I'm like going through my list that I had I prepped before, but I feel like you <laughs> you tough you've got to covered into everything i guess maybe catherine for you my um just going way back to the beginning of how you tracked all these people down to participate in this book was that a process or were are you just like a yes, fantastic detective yeah it really was and but facebook you know um you know it's kind of funny freddie had a name and he had a reputation but when the internet came out oh my god it was it just changed the world you know and um so it was like i could get on Facebook and I'd be saying, Hey, we're doing this, whatever. And the next thing I know, I would have these people coming in out of the woodworks. Matter of fact, I just talked to two more people that worked with Freddie um, back in the sixties that I really wished we had, could have found before, you know, and had them a part of the book, but you know, Facebook, it was, it, it made it a lot easier, but yeah, I, it was a lot of work tracking down a lot of people and getting phone numbers and, finding ways to contact them and stuff. But yeah, I, I had a great time doing it. Yeah, we did quite a bit of it. We did quite a bit of it together um, with Freddie when he was still alive. And that was part of the fun is whether we went to see Merle Haggard and spent a long morning with him on Sunday, um, Freddie, Catherine, myself, and um, our our friend Joy. And, 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 and Willie, and, and then Willie, you know, talking to us on Christmas Day. Christmas Day, yeah. You know? Willie took wow. out time from his, probably the, of all the people, that guy doesn't want to talk to any, you know, on, on, on a one holiday like that. But he, he cared enough about Freddie to take out time. And, you know, John Rich and then Kenny was a late, it wasn't deliberate, but just with the scheduling. There's people too, like Tandy Tucker did our forward. That was from the original. Um, this book didn't, really for the four years that, that 16 to 20, um, it really was reinvented because we rewrote it around the screenplay from the original draft of it that never really got published. And so we really re we reshook it up and completely restructured it and, and basically told it from the point of view of his life story as you would see it cinematically um, or say, as I like to say in 3D, because we had the musical components there now. And, and this gentleman, Milton Quackenbush, go Milton, uh, provided us with these amazing soundboard tapes from this Reno and Vegas show and gave us permission, a very talented painter, I'd like to acknowledge him because he just passed away, named Robert Hurst, who paints all of the induction portraits for the Texas Heritage Songwriters Association. Hall of Fame, yeah, Hall, Hall of Fame, Fame, yes. Freddie, by the way, was the first, along with Chris Christopherson, inductees into that Hall of Fame, uh, gave, us, gave us an okay to use that. And we not only used it on the album cover, but then we ran ads as we wanted to. We have 120 color photo pages in this book and there's about, 50 new pages of photos, but one of them is this beautiful portrait. You really, so you just get to see the reverence that this guy generated. And, and, and there's actually also, before we go, one thing I would also tell you to put a cap on Freddie's humor. He requested he be roasted at his funeral <laughs> and we put the roast or say highlights from the roast without parsing words. I mean, in the, in the end of the book. So you live with this guy from the, from the West Plains, Texas birth all the way 
and growing up there in his day, years in the Marines, he was in the Marines for eight years, his, his Willie Nelson and him's beginning, their lifelong friendship, him and Merle's lifelong friendship, all of his successes. And you end it with this really great send off that Catherine can tell you about. He wanted to be Rose. Well, <laughs> well, Brady said, you know, and it was after Floyd Tillman, when Floyd Tillman had passed away, um, it really bothered Freddie because there was not this no major um, acknowledgement of Floyd Tillman. You know, there wasn't much in any newspapers. There wasn't much on any of the radio, which was really surprising. Um, so when, when Floyd had passed and that really bothered Freddie and he was like, mama, when I go, don't, you know, I don't want to be forgotten. He said, but I don't want people standing up there, you know, crying and talking about how great I am because I already know that. <laughs> so that's when he, I know he said, I already know that I'm great. But so he said, um, I want y'all to roast me. Um, and we'd roasted Freddie on his 70th birthday, had a humongous roast with Willie and Merle and Coach Royal and just, you know, major, you know, Sonny Throckmorton. And um, so Freddie said he wanted us to roast him. And he, and he even said, he goes, if they don't know any good stories about me, tell them to make one up because there'd probably be some truth in it. But they're all so that's real. What we <laughs> and yeah, they're all real. And we actually did roast Freddie. Matter of fact, after we did the Marines, you know, ceremony um, where they did the flags and the 21 gun salute and all of that stuff that I actually said, you know, okay, now we're going to roast Freddie. If there's anybody in here that's got tender ears and you don't want to hear some um, profanity and et cetera, this would be a good time to leave the room because we literally roasted Freddie big time. The list lit him up. And and one of, I, is it Bo? Because you always give me shit for that. Is this, which Bo is it? Bo, Bo Roberts. Bo Roberts. Roberts. Bo Roberts, without giving the story away, gives one of you. Bo Roberts actually wrote. Um, he 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 wrote that song for Willie. Um, let's see what is it? Uh, when I, it, I'm gonna get it mixed up. It, it went to bed at at ten with. Uh, yeah, went to bed at ten with a two. No, went to bed at two with a ten and woke up at ten with a two. <laughs> so he he tells a story that that's particularly um, amusing because Freddie needed assistance to get into the bathroom, not to use the bathroom. And him and Bo were alone on the bus while Catherine was right that's there. That's Bo Porter. Bo okay, Porter. that's Bo Porter. So Bo okay. Porter, Bo Porter, they're sitting there, and Bo says he's telling Freddie what a hero he is to him and all this, and what an inspiration he's been. Another example. And Freddie said, "I got to use the restroom." So. Bo says, well, by God, let's get it done, you know? So he picks him up and helps carry him over to the bathroom and gets him situated and some things go on you can read in the roast. And when it's done, he gets him out of the bathroom and he says, what do you think of your hero now, son? You know, so he he just, Freddie's <laughs> sense of humor was so, it was so self-effacing as much as it was anything else. And that's part of another reason why I think he hung around so long when Merle Haggard could have hung out with anybody, you know what I mean? For Ford, I mean, Willie could have, these guys loved being around Freddie almost to the point Catherine can tell you where they, he, no one outshined each other, but he held his own in any capacity that he was socializing, whether playing oh, cards, definitely, telling definitely. jokes. Yeah. Uh, he was a life of the party a lot of the time. And even once, even once no, yeah. I met them, um, I mean, of, of, we, of the nine years of that book, the four that Freddie was alive and really the three that he could communicate that we worked on, they were three of the funnest I've ever spent on 50 books working on a book. I mean, I wrote a book with Lemmy Kilmeister. You don't get them in Motorhead. That's, you know, but Freddie was like, you know, really, really just the most fun, both of these two. But Freddie, you know, we so we really we made promises to him then talk with him about his final dreams for the book and the the hopefully the film here. And, and, and the, you know, it hasn't been for lack of interest. We're now talking to our third set of, of potential producers. We had co funding before COVID and lost it. And we had a, almost a lead guy, really talented actor we can't talk about because he had to take a pass with COVID. But so we, we really with this book release, we're reinventing a little bit of our, our plan now with a much stronger product to show around because this is such a if you look at the back of the book it just i mean you go down the list here from whether it's rolling stone cmt the austin chronicle billboard merle haggard willie nelson taste of country frank ladell rattlesnake annie john rich big kenny larry gatlin tanny tucker that's just quotes and blurbs about him um so we want people if anything else we want at the end of the end of the book when you close it we want you to be not only aware of him but really aware of how much of an influence he had over country music and over um 
just and the inspiration and and the inspiration that he ended up being because of the Parkinson's and and the generosity he was with his time and um, so yeah there, there's just Freddie had had he had he had more than just a music history I mean um, to the point to where even Freddie was an engineer that made our own electricity we lived up in the mountains and off the grid and this we were living off the grid before you know it was popular early 90s and um, and and so Freddie was, you know, he built his own electrical plant and in a, re, a refrigerator, a double door refrigerator that he buried on the back in in the ground. And and so, you know, um, Freddie was just more than just a musician. He was an inspiration. He was a um, problem solver. He was an engineer. He was a producer. Um, Songwriter. <laughs> yeah, he, he, the lit. You know, it's just a. He just was an amazing man. And I, I would tell you that I miss that man so much, so much I miss him. And I just got hit with a hailstorm and I'm trying to figure out how to do all this by myself. And I'm like, where's my Freddie? <laughs> he would have had this figured out for us. Yeah, and 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 that's important too, is there, not to sound nerdy, but there was a responsibility I felt with this book more than really any other than probably Joe Satriani's because that was such a, a huge privilege and heart to work with them. I would count Freddie the other project where you just felt the weight of it. And you and and Catherine and I had, I remember we had a phone call in the winter of 2017 and she was like, uh-huh, because I was telling her, oh, and I, and I think we can do this and we can get that going. And, and But we really, in 2018, we started, we, we had a legal situation that got resolved and we had all of our rights Back fully. And that's another thing that's important to me. Freddie wanted this book to and project to provide. And we now own 100% of the rights to this. We got a major, major, Baker and Taylor is a huge retail distributor that took the project on. Uh, and SCB is our distributor for the ebook. Uh, MVD is our distributor for the soundtrack. These are all major companies that got involved in this project. Uh, and, and so whether you want an ebook, you want to read along while you, uh, excuse me, listen along while you read. Um, any way you want to get it, Freddie, whether you want to hear him, whether you want to read him, whether you want to listen to him, whatever it is, you have access now. We have a YouTube channel. I said view him because we've got all these great videos up there, you know, him on Ralph Emery, him at the Austin City Limits uh, in his own headlining show, him at, uh, which is huge. That's not easy to do. Him, um, God, back in the 70s playing with his zoot suit and banjo during the heyday in Reno, um, Catherine Unearthed, all these recordings from 45s back in the 60s when we curated the sound soundtrack uh, that had never been heard before. So there's so many different ways you can look at Freddie's life now and get a really full view of how influential and, and exciting it was. Just so many fantastic stories. I feel like we could talk all night about yeah, it. There's, there's so much to cover. But if we're let's give let's give everyone listening just a little bit of homework. If you can distill it down into the top three Freddie Power songs. Um, I always get lucky with you. Natural high. Um, looking for a place to fall apart. Um, God. Chase each other around the room, Freddie, California. You know, there's there's so many of them. Yes, and he even actually has um, some cuts that he did. Um, he wrote with uh, Big and Rich. You know, um, so Willie, he'll be the, the, the Jedi medley, and yeah, and and uh, you can hear it all on the soundtrack, the official book soundtrack on Spotify as well. Freddie Powers' Life and Times of Freddie Powers: The Spree of '83, official book soundtrack, uh, at, at our YouTube channel. And you could boil it down to 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 like 52 songs and that's just perfect sampling 50 years 50 yeah songs. one for every week of the year i like it i like <laughs> it. this guy was so prolific <laughs> he was such a talented it, it, talent just came out of this dude endlessly it was amazing to be around it was watch and you know be part of people want to pick up a copy of the book if they want to have their own picking party and, and that they're picking it up yeah barnes yeah, and noble really amazon kindle it's you can read it by ebook if i mean so many of the kids now with the phones and everybody powers.net yeah in the spree of 83 book.com yes you can order it from freddypowers.net and Catherine will sign and personally maybe sign one to you you never know we'll sign it but personally inscribe it for freddie if it's if you have a, a a fan or someone that you want to give it to as a christmas present the book will be around now for for years to come and in, in different formats and then the film and so we're excited to keep his name going and that's what he wanted so absolutely we're doing a fantastic job Catherine and jake thank you so much this was awesome thanks for having us and i appreciate it wonderful stuff and let's end with a corny joke like like we always do on that's, the show that's her department i uh, <laughs> no well yeah let's hear let's hear your best one first oh, and then I'll, I'll tell you one yeah <laughs> well, well now my favorite one is <laughs> 
do you know why Peter Rabbit hid his eggs? Because he didn't know and anybody know he was making it with a chicken. <laughs> okay. All right, Jake, what do you have? What's your corny, oh, Jeff? Man, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I'm going to defer to Freddie on the jokes, man. I've, I've had a long week. Yeah, and none of the ones that I could tell would, I mean, I go, I'm so bad with jokes. I'd have to think of like OJ jokes from the 90s or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> none of them are very funny. Freddie was such a master comedian. You can, you can get them from him. You can get them right on YouTube. He's sitting there telling them right now if you want to go look at it. Boom. Well, I I always like ending with a corny joke, so I might need to go borrow some. I was going to tell y'all a joke about the staccato, but never mind. It's too short. <laughs> Get after it today, people. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. As always, you can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.